Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh, and today I'm joined by Fry. Hello. And a special guest who I will introduce in a moment. Today, we're doing our first in an ongoing series of Star Wars ripoffs. The cultural impact and box office success of Star Wars spawned numerous imitations and homages from all over the world, which is only fitting since Star Wars itself was a pastiche of genres, stories, and conventions from all over the world. And we have genuine affection for a lot of these movies and wanted to take this opportunity to discuss some of our favorites. The first film we're going to talk about is perhaps the most infamous, The Man Who Saves the World, better known online as Turkish Star Wars. And appearances aside, this movie is much more than a mere ripoff. And to help explain why, we are very excited to be joined by our special guest, award-winning filmmaker and film historian, author of How the World Remade Hollywood, Global Interpretations of 65 Iconic Films. And aside from the filmmakers themselves, arguably the foremost expert on The Man Who Saves the World, I'm so pleased to welcome Ed Glazer to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been looking forward to this episode for a while. So, Ed, you're a film historian, and your primary focus is what you call cross-cultural remakes. Is that correct? Uh, I usually call them remake exploitation because it's more fun. Um, cross-cultural remakes is probably something that is uh, maybe more acceptable in academic spheres. Yeah, I think remake exploitation is a much more fun term for the phenomenon. Um and if you wouldn't mind, just to start out for the benefit of our listeners who may not have any idea what we're talking about, how would you define remixploitation as a phenomenon? Like, what, what do you consider a remixploitation film? More often than not, it tends to be a film that capitalizes on the success of a previous film in one way or another um, by sort of doing a lot of the main things that that original film did again often doing sort of an unauthorized remake. So there's a lot of sort of, uh, in quotes, ripoff kind of material that tends to fall into the remake exploitation genre. Now, I would contend that there's a lot of official remakes um, that sort of do that, but all of these take place in other countries. So countries outside of the movie's initial production country. Yeah, I think generally speaking, uh, we're talking about Western films, by and large, from the U.S. that um, have either made a lot of money or have a large cultural footprint. And what's so interesting about this specific phenomenon that you talk about is that is that like it's not it's not just a cash in to make a lot of money. I mean, obviously, it's that, but it's also the fascinating ones are the ones that manage to inject the culture that's remaking it into the work that it's remaking. Yeah. yeah, it's that's kind of the sort of Im secret implicit part of remake exploitation. The idea is sort of it's remake exploitation. So you're exploiting that original film. You're doing that in another country for another audience um, with different pop culture touchstones, different social, religious, et cetera, backgrounds. Uh, so you are tailoring your remake uh, or remix to that new audience and so it has to incorporate it has to incorporate new ideas uh sometimes those are greater and sometimes those are less just depending on uh what the filmmaker is kind of trying to achieve and you know you get some remakes that are kind of very by the numbers cash-ins but i think you also have a lot of remakes that are less slavish remakes and more an opportunity for artists to kind of 
express themselves through that remake. No, absolutely. And I would argue that the film we're going to be discussing in a few minutes is a really good example of that because it's not it's not at all a remake of of Star Wars. It's doing its own thing. It's very own very own thing. It's, <laughs> um, and it is interesting to this phenomenon because a lot of of countries have their own film industries that are sort of shaped by the economic and social and political situations that are unique to them. And that very often comes out in the films that they put out. I think our listeners are probably, you know, familiar with like the spaghetti Western, for example, is like a whole subgenre of the Western that comes from Italy in the 1960s. And there are a lot of trends, like especially in the Italian film industry, which is the sort of example of remake exploitation, as you term it, that I'm the most familiar with. But like there are trends that they would follow. So you get like a zillion, you know, what they called like sword and sandal films, and then you get the Western films and then the crime films and right. stuff. The, the Italians even have a particular name for that phenomenon. Uh, they're called uh, filoni which is uh, the Italian word for thread. It's the idea that one particular film starts this whole thread of similar films. Oh, that's oh, fascinating. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, because it's a Star Wars podcast, but uh, Dave Filoni is the, the sort of like head honcho over at Disney Star Wars with all of the new shows. He's like the major creative voice or one of the major creative voices. So, I mean, that's what that word made me think of. That's funny. So what's interesting is that Star Wars happens and creates its own felony. Mm -hmm. It seems very appropriate to me that a film that already has remixing in its DNA would sort of spawn a whole subgenre of people using it as a, a jumping off point to create their own work. Absolutely. What do you find so compelling about these remix exploitation films? Obviously, I mean, you wrote a book about them. You did a whole very awesome YouTube series called Deja Vu that's on your Neon Harbor YouTube channel. What is it about them that deserves so much attention? For me personally, I've just always had a particular fascination with remakes in general. It just sort of tickles that part of my brain um, where I want to connect dots and compare and understand reasonings behind things. Um, one of my favorite films is a remake of a film. Uh, it's the John McKiernan remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. I thought the original is fine, but I loved McKiernan's film. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, and then very shortly thereafter, McKiernan uh, remade another film by the same director uh, that was Rollerball. And that movie's terrible. And I started like hunting down, like, <laughs> why is this movie so bad? What, what changed? What, what is the reason behind this? I feel like there should be a pattern here for it you know, good remake of a guy's film to another good remake of this guy's film. But I've always been interested in remakes. I just think that they're generally interesting. And I think a number of artists also uh, seem to think so. I mean, you look at, for example, um, Mozart, who did the 12 variations on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, just, you know, because it was just interesting. And the thing is that we're very familiar with remakes from our own culture, uh, to the point where we complain about them all the time. Um, but seeing our culture, our pop culture, through a very different lens really kind of takes that interest for me to the next level uh, to see what is it that resonates overseas. Um, 
what are the ways that our stories are adapted. Uh, that's just all really cool and neat, and I want to sink my teeth into it. So uh, I don't know that there's really a concrete answer. I just think, uh, I, I feel like it tells us something uh, about ourselves, about other cultures. And if you're kind of a pop culture historian, as many of us kind of are these days, uh, it's just it's just a really fun kind of playground to explore. Yeah, you you mentioned in your book, cross-cultural remakes are basically like perfect examples of memes, which I thought was very true. You know, like you can't get a cleaner example of like a piece of cultural information kind of passing from one entity to another. Absolutely. And uh, my, my friend and colleague, Ian Robert Smith, wrote um, another book on the subject, a more academic work on the subject called The Hollywood Meme, which uh, explores that idea in even greater detail. This is something as Westerners or as or as Americans that we forget that the film industry, such as it is, is, you know, because of the amount of money involved in, you know, mounting a film and distributing a film, certainly historically, like Hollywood and American films have have really sort of had this hegemonic grip on the world. So so in a certain sense, it's like countries in the world had no choice but to sort of see American films and, you know, watch American films. And it seems to me it's only natural that they would take those examples and adapt them to fit their sensibilities and how they see the world. And, you know, they want to see a reflection of their values and, and faces that they recognize. I think in your chapter on The Man Who Saves the World, you say something about how that was the first time that children had seen a Turkish man in space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that alone makes its existence worthwhile. I should add for the particularly pedantic out there that obviously it was not the first Turkish science fiction film. There have been other films with Turks in space, um, but it was really sort of the first Turkish astronaut. You know, the idea that this is a character who isn't um, sort of brought into space by happenstance. He isn't um, a an alternate version of a pop culture character from elsewhere that we're already aware of. For example, Star Trek, uh, there was a Turkish Star Trek oh, film. I see, yes. Uh, but you know, this, right. uh, this was, these were Turkish sort of astronauts or sort of uh, space heroes in their own right. I uh, know, absolutely. And we welcome the pedantic in all its forms on this podcast. So <laughs> the man who saves the world. Do you remember the first time you came across this film? You bet I do. <laughs> it's, it's not especially exciting, but uh, it is sort of burned into my memory. It was, I had recently shown some friends an unsubtitled copy of a Bollywood remake of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, so yes, uh, a Silence of the Lambs musical. And that was a great deal of fun. Uh, they enjoyed that a lot. And I started thinking, you know, I wonder if there are other international remakes, possibly unauthorized, that are out there. Uh, so I should look. Uh, I should look online uh, and just see what I can find. And I think I just Googled the foreign remakes or something, foreign movie remakes, foreign movie ripoffs, you know, whatever my uh, Google foo sort of suggested to me at the time. And the first thing that came up was the Turkish Star Wars. And I think I was taken to somebody's 
review of the film, some written review of the film. And I'm like, this looks amazing. I think there were some screenshots, it looked amazing. This was in the very earliest days of YouTube. So we're talking about an era where videos were ten, generally capped at five or 10 minutes. Um, but the complete film was available on Google Video back when that was a thing. Uh, so this was before Google even bought out YouTube. And so I remember telling my friends about this and we all gathered in the basement of one of my friend's houses. And he got Google Video up and running on his computer and then like ran the computer output to a CRT TV so that we could all watch it more comfortably. And yeah. like, then you know that when you do that, the film is, or the, the video is even blurrier because you're not talking about a one-to-one -one sort of pixel aspect ratio. So it's kind of compensating and everything looks a little bit fuzzier than it should. So uh, we all gathered around the TV watching this very poorly subtitled, rather blurry, uh, wild Turkish science fiction film with uh, several boxes of pizza. Uh, trying to figure out what was going on and it was magic. And from then on, I, I like, I had, I knew I had to find more of this stuff. And I think perhaps more importantly, um, I kind of had to figure out and learn where did this come from? I mean, yes, Turkey, but, but why this film? Why does it look like this? Why does it sound like this? Uh, who are the people that made it? What was the context surrounding it? Um, because I think it's very easy to look at a weird film out of context that we kind of don't understand. And uh, it's entertaining, but, um, you know, people made it. So how do they make it? Why did they make it? Why did they make this? That sort of thing. So there you go. No, totally. I think you hit the nail on the head. I have certainly found I have a much greater appreciation for all kinds of films when I have at least some of the context, especially for foreign films or older films that may come from a culture, a tradition, a sensibility that I don't bring with me. So I have a much richer viewing experience of a movie when I have some familiarity with the cultural context of uh, from which it sprang. I don't know why I said it like that. Um, <laughs> so that said, could you talk a little about what you discovered about where the man who saves the world, AKA Turkish Star Wars came from? Yeah, the year was 1982 and there was a filmmaker named Chetin Inanch um, and his producing partner, Mehmet Karafas, and they'd been in business for a number of years. And the history of Turkish cinema is a wild one and would take too long to go into. But basically the idea is that they, it was a country with a ravenous appetite for films, no real infrastructure to make films, no sort of Hollywood or Chinachita or, um, uh, you know, the Shaw brothers in Hong Kong. Like there's just nothing like that. Um, so it was all very fly by the seat of your pants, uh, very, very low budget. And in 1982, they had a multi-picture deal with 
a very famous Turkish action star named Junaid Arkin. And they had done a number of sort of cops and robbers films, um, but they were kind of looking for something different. The problem was that this was just a couple of years after Turkey's third military coup in about 30 years. And so there was a very big issue with censorship. So one's options as an artist for creating art is very limited when you're under martial law. So you cannot do a film with a lot of political subject matter. Um, and even if you don't, there's still a possibility that you will be censored anyway. Uh, there are filmmakers who complained that they had a scene on a beach, a romantic scene on the beach, and uh, one of the two lovers says, uh, come on in, the, the water's shallow over here. And that was censored because it gave away strategic information about the coast of Turkey. Wow. No, no. You would have, um, this story is sort of, a, is not strictly true, but there are stories like this that you would have uh, bad guys shooting at a car and it would shoot, uh, shoot out the left tire and the censor would say, why did he shoot the left tire? Are you a leftist? And so, I mean, they were kind of looking for reasons to just use their scissors. Um, but the point is that it was very difficult to make whatever kind of films you wanted to. You generally had to play it safe. Um, however, Chetin Ananch was looking for something different. And around this time, The Empire Strikes Back was in cinemas. And he thought, you know, the space adventure stuff. Junaid Arkin was hugely famous for a lot of swashbuckling uh, sword fight adventure films in the Errol Flynn mode uh, in the 70s. What if we do something like that, but in space? Effectively kind of a Flash Gordon sort of deal. Well, Junaid Arkin was down for it. Uh, so they went to Inancha's partner, Mehmet Karafas, pitched their idea. And Karafas was, I guess, in a very uh, good mood because he was willing to give them twice the usual budget uh, that uh, he would normally give to a film, which, I mean, to a certain extent is understandable because space adventure films are very expensive, much more expensive than, say, melodramas or cop movies or things like that. That still only amounted to about $300,000, which is about one thirty seventh the cost of Star Wars. It's uh, less than 2% the cost of The Empire Strikes Back. So uh, still, they decide that they, they want to go, go forward with this. And uh, Inancha's idea is to build a bunch of outdoor spaceship sets uh, in this sandy seaside resort town of Kilios. And they do, they create these sort of cool spaceship sets uh, for all of the outer space scenes. And 
Uh, I'm not sure exactly how they were planning on shooting it, um, but unfortunately it doesn't really matter because just before they were going to shoot, a storm hit and destroyed the sets. So now they were left with no spaceships for their space movie uh, and had to figure out how to, I mean, at the very least, how to get them onto this uh, Flash Gordon Mongo style planet where they have to fight the monsters and, and uh, save the girl and defeat the bad guy. So Inanch does the only thing he can do. He steals Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> He bribes a night watchman and uh, overnight he steals the reels from Star Wars Episode Four. Um, overnight takes them to his uh, editor, friend, and colleague, Quentin Tolgar's studio. They uh, take the scenes that they want the, the space footage, the dogfight stuff, mostly the trench sequence, um, make uh, duplicates of those sequences and then get the reels back to uh, the studio before the next day. And with that, they cobble together this new space sequence that kicks off the film. Now, uh, early accounts of the film uh, suggest that the beginning of the movie was really intended to be sort of a Planet of the Apes kind of thing where the heroes oh. were really sort of scientific astronauts and then they end up crashing on the planet, which if you watch the film and you see right after they do crash, uh, there's this sort of exploratory sequence that both looks and sounds, thanks to lifted music, uh, very much like Planet of the Apes. Yeah, um, I was gonna yeah. say, yes, it does. And so my guess, I'm not 100% sure about this, but my educated guess is that what happened was that Star Wars was the most sensible movie to space footage from there's only a certain kind of space footage in star wars uh what with the wars and all so they basically recrafted the opening sequence to be about a space battle and uh shot new material to um incorporate that and so uh they're using sequences with uh the the death star trench run and then to show their heroes as pilots of some of these fighters uh, they sit them down in the dubbing studio, uh, project footage from Star Wars behind them, uh, and give them motorcycle helmets and, like, uh, I think, headphones on top of the motorcycle helmet, uh, and then have them talk about, okay, I'm ascending. All right, Typhoon 2, let's go. And behind them is space footage from Star Wars, but with the cuts so that... Right. Suddenly they're <laughs> like, at one point there's like a, a uh, another TIE fighter behind them. And then suddenly they're careening backwards down the Death Star. It's like, it's absolutely bonkers. Um, so that ended up giving Turkish Star Wars its most famous scene. Um, but really the rest of the film is kind of uh, a Flash Gordon style adventure meets scatterbrained religious allegory. Uh, with footage from multiple movies and music from even more movies. Yeah, well, that actually makes a lot of sense that the Star Wars sequence at the beginning was created out of necessity. But there's like sort of a charming 
quality to that opening sequence the idea that they thought they could get away with this like the belief that they had in what they were doing was so strong that they just knew that you would go with it yeah i mean the thing is that you know it's not quite a case of sort of ed woodian optimism uh but you know the fact that it it was a it was a very kind of slapdash industry and uh i think because of that and i don't mean like it's bad i just mean like everything had to be kind of thrown together very quickly all the time to keep churning out these yeah. movies because um i mean at its peak uh turkey's film industry was the third most prolific in the world uh so you're doing that with no in oh i didn't realize yeah that. so you're doing that with no infrastructure i mean like come on um uh and so audiences were I think very willing to uh, go along with it. And the thing is that, you know, people will say people in America or generally in the West will look at something like Turkish Star Wars and say um, like, oh, I can't believe that they, you know, do they not like know that it was from Star Wars? Did they not have Star Wars? It's like, no, of course they knew it was from Star Wars. The thing is that that didn't matter. Like you're, you're, you're doing, you're, you're getting the idea across. There's fun space battles. What's not to like? And, you know, there really yeah. wasn't anything that was uh, legally preventing them from doing what they were doing because Turkey's intellectual property laws were very nebulous when it came to um, foreign intellectual property. Yeah, you know, film, certainly now, but for I think the last few decades, I feel like has been, has had a preoccupation with realism by that i mean the audience assumes that what they are being shown is what literally is supposed to be happening zero suspension of disbelief right right and i feel like that's not always the way films used to operate with an audience like i feel like th there was sort of like this implicit understanding that films could also be more representational mm -hmm. you know the images and the cinema of it all is like creating an impression that's su supposed to communicate an idea and I think the opening sequence of this film is an example where I think you're right. I think like to contemporary Western eyes, like they aren't seeing the representation. We sort of lost the ability to see what it's doing, which is creating an impression, a representation of what this is supposed to be. It's not it's not literally this is happening. You're supposed to believe this is real and exactly what it is. Right. If that makes any sense. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, it's worth remembering that this was not plan A, but they right. but they did have to finish a film. So, yes. you know. To, just to go back to, like, the political climate it was made in, like, um, I, th as I understand, like, uh, Janae Arkin, like, uh, he made actual, like, overtly political, like, a few overtly political movies in the 70s, kind of right before the martial law era. And I was wondering... If you've ever sensed that, like, this is a secretly, like, political movie in any way, in the sense that Star Wars is. Um, no. Even though that, despite, yeah, that, I mean, that's <laughs> what they were, that's what they were trying to avoid that appearance at all costs, but I wonder if that kind of snuck in there. No, I mean, in any way. To be sure, uh, there were political filmmakers that were still doing their best around that time. I mean, in 1980, you had someone, you had directors like uh, Yilmaz Gunay. Um, very famous left-wing Marxist filmmaker uh, who in the year of, uh, or, you know, just after the, the coup um, made the road, uh, Yol, from prison uh, by proxy. 
so you know there were there were still political filmmakers but in the case of turkish star wars it really was made explicitly for children there were some things in there that i couldn't help but wonder if there was some maybe unconscious political message like some stuff in there about turkish pride or maybe the idea that their culture would survive into the future yeah and that's absolutely fair i mean it's it's worth keeping in mind that turkey is and has been a very nationalistic country. So there really is a lot of that throughout the sort of pop culture. I worked on an English language translation of a Turkish version of Dracula from, from the 1920s. And it was basically a pirated version of Dracula. The real uh, Bram Stoker's novel didn't get into Turkey until the 1990s or 1990s, something like that. And, uh, one of the things that it did besides um, modernizing it and setting it in Istanbul is uh, really infusing it with that very familiar sense of Turkish nationalism that you would see in something like Turkish Star Wars or, or many uh, of the films of that era. So I would say sort of like you're saying, it's not uncommon for that audience, but coming at it from outside, it does look sort of peculiar. Um, and I should also say that a lot of the content of Turkish Star Wars, and I continue to call it Turkish Star Wars because it is so much faster to say than Dunya Yukatranadam yes. or yeah. The Man Who Saves the World. Um, but um, it, it was really created as sort of a mishmash of ideas out of uh, Çetin Anansh and, and Junaid Arkin's minds. So there's a lot mm. of philosophy and religious bits and pieces, probably some political bits and pieces uh, that are thrown into this soup. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're to say, well, it has this underlying sort of subversive political message, mm, no. But to say it's devoid of philosophy or or, or politics in any way. I mean, even even by being devoid of politics, I suppose you could say that that, that is making a political statement. So uh, yes. I, I don't want to invalidate that reading of it, but I think sure, when sure. it comes to sort of uh, artistic intent, um, it's just not there as, as prominently. No, that makes sense. What do you love about this movie? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have time. I mean, this is a movie that is relentlessly entertaining from the first frame to the last, it is uh, fast-paced, kinetic, you know, loads of action, space battles, multiple alien races, monsters, robots, blasters, magic, sword fights. What is not to love? Not to mention the joy of recognizing bits and pieces from other films. I mean, it's just so much fun. You know, if you're talking about particular scenes, I mean, none of my choices are going to surprise you. Uh, I love the opening dogfight sequence. I don't think I have ever seen so much footage from another source repurposed in such an audacious way, not in terms of like brazen copyright infringement, because that really was not an issue, but totally reworked. It's it's something that I, I wouldn't really see until uh, maybe a few years later with, um, are you familiar with the Space Mutiny? It was a Mystery Science yeah. Theater 3000 uh, sort of classic. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that uses a bunch of footage from Battlestar Galactica. But even so, it's basically using it the same way that Battlestar Galactica used it, just changing the insert shots and calling the bad guy something else. And, you know, it's pretty much the same thing. But here you're looking at uh, a sequence where uh, they've 
totally cut it apart. And so now the TIE fighters are the good guys. The X-Wings are the bad guys. The Millennium Falcon is maybe the villain ship. It's kind of unclear, um, but it, it uses that footage to tell a totally different story. So that's that's loads of fun. Um, I love the training montage with Marat and Ali punching rocks and kicking them until they explode. And uh, of course the big <laughs> finale free for all with hundreds of alien monsters and Junet Arkin punching and kicking them with his golden gauntlets and boots. Like I was surprised. This is the first time I've watched this movie like all the way through. And I was surprised. Like I, I just loved it in ways that like I wasn't expecting to. Like obviously there is like first of all, it's like uh like gleefully uh creative in like a childlike way, but like and so and it's kind of in individual scenes, you're just kind of like like this is insane what's going on here. But I was surprised like in how well, like in over like a broad sense, like how it's like, oh, this is like a satisfying story from like beginning to end. Like it's kind of like if like there was a written essay and all the paragraphs were solid like these are all solid paragraphs but like every every sentence in them was just like an insane sentence <laughs> but like the whole <laughs> structure worked yeah it was just an insanely creative movie and i think the editing kind of rises to like a level of like true art at some points uh it is there, it is there, unorthodox yes and there was a, the the one towards the beginning it's after the planet of the ape sequence um when they're kind of discussing like do you think that's true and then there's that jarring cut that like the skeleton uh, army shows up and is immediately on top of them like fighting them like i think uh I th you said this is like the original cut was two and a half hours right yes and they, they kind of do you think that the way that it was the final product was edited is as a result of like that in particular or i would say that that is likely part of it but i would not be surprised if that is only a small part and not just films, especially in the 80s, were very wild and kinetic. Um, he and his director of photography, who was also his brother-in-law, Chetin Gritop, they just did wild things with the camera that you are not supposed to do. And it's fantastic. Um, and, and there's a lot of sort of wild discontinuity of action or of editing uh, that can make for a very disorienting experience. But I will tell you, having in a couple of cases really gone through this film frame by frame, certainly in the case of Turkish Star Wars, and not just because I'm a weirdo, that you start to finally realize, okay, so the action between these shots does have a logic behind it. It just doesn't come through because the shot shifted beyond 180 degrees, the angle rather, and, uh, right. and then we jumped further away and there was a weird cutaway. But like, if you... If you were to write it down on paper, you could probably map it out as long as you were going slow enough. Now, I'm not saying that that is smart filmmaking, generally speaking, um, but it is something uh, that I observed and perhaps is maybe a treat if you've seen this movie enough as you start to be able to piece some of it together. I mean, not to mention the fact that some of the shots last just the tiniest fraction of a second. Yes. But it technically, it's like, it's there though. It's like, I mean, it's not classical Hollywood editing, but like you can, it's there just kind of like collapse, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I will, I will say that, you know, in many cases, this, that, that is the case. There are also, you know, elements of this movie that genuinely do not make sense. And like, acknowledge, like, <laughs> yes. they, they don't make sense. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put this on an artistic pedestal where i'm suggesting you guys just don't understand man 
<laughs> no, I understand what you're saying. Um, though I will say, though, if you subscribe to the death of the author reading where intention at a certain point doesn't really matter and it sort of it sort of is what it is. So if you make those connections or you ascribe meaning to those things, I mean, that's certainly valid. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's more like a collection of art forms. Like you were saying, like even the, the use of like lifted footage is the the way that it's used is I think it kind of is its own form of found footage. Like they don't, it isn't just kind of slapped on there because they needed a shot of an explosion. I mean, it is that, but it also they, you know, they implement it in a way that kind of makes it their own, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I can absolutely say that. Am I correct in understanding that you're in possession of the last known surviving 35 millimeter print of the man who saves the world. Yes, I am. Um, how? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you don't have to get into Give, the... Giving away the, the secrets. <laughs> let me actually go back a little bit. What started your search, or was it something that you stumbled upon? No, yeah, I, I think I, I, I'll probably, I, I should probably answer your question at, at how. So the problem with a lot of Turkish films and their existence is that so many of them from that period, it's the Yeshilchan was the, the street in Istanbul where most Turkish production, uh, production companies had their offices, and it sort of became shorthand for the film industry between the 1950s and 80s, sort of Turkish Hollywood, basically. And many of those films were simply not preserved, or they were preserved improperly, and there was a disaster. And so, so many of them have been lost or destroyed entirely. And often those that did survive, like Turkish Star Wars, only did so on videotape with the prints and negatives all gone. But in the fall of 2015, a brief ad appeared on an Istanbul cinema website, for sale, 35 millimeter distribution print of The Man Who Saves the World. So it turns out that back in the 80s, a cinema projectionist had just kept it. Instead of sending it back to the studio, he claimed the print had been heavily damaged, way too damaged to ever play again. So the company said, fine, don't send it back, just throw it away. And he said, no problem, presumably with a great big wink. But uh, in 2015, he sold the print to my colleague in Istanbul, Ali Murat Girven. And Ali Murat had hopes of preserving, scanning, and restoring it. Unfortunately, no one in Turkey was interested in making that happen. I'd been following his efforts and I eventually bought the print from him knowing that there's much more interest in the film abroad and that at least the scanning and preservation could be done here in the States. So I got the film and worked with a company to have it cleaned, scanned and, and stored. Uh, because by the time Ali Murat and I got a hold of it, this was not a pristine print. The color had faded and parts had simply been damaged over time and cut out, sometimes just a few frames, but there were about half a dozen really significant chunks that were missing, including the very beginning and very end. So when we premiered it in London in 2018, I produced a sort of reconstructed version with color correction and the missing portions patched from videotape sources. So that's the story of uh, my involvement in the the Turkish Star Wars print. Well, on behalf of cinema 
files everywhere and fans of this film and the internet, I want to extend my hearty thanks <laughs> and gratitude for your film preservation work. And then you did a very limited Blu-ray release of this restoration. So, uh, so that was not correct? me. That was, um, oh, okay. so yeah, that was a company called uh, Big Bosphorus out of uh, somewhere in the Western US. And they did, yeah, a very, very limited uh, Blu-ray release. I am one of the proud owners. I have. Oh my I goodness. think it was what one of a thousand. Yeah, they there were not there were not very many. It was it was available for about a month. I just I love that this exists, and I'm so I'm so glad that you made it possible. Well, I I basically. can't I can't claim to have any particular philanthropic motives. I just wanted to see it. <laughs> I mean, that's I get it. No, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that's that's not really true. I mean, obviously, like I I love sharing these movies with people and and uh frankly you know when i got it the goal was to get it in front of as many eyes as possible uh, which as you can imagine is very difficult i mean my you know i reached out to lots of other um labels like hey i've got this thing are you interested and they're like oh that sounds awesome no thanks <laughs> so you know, um, I was really delighted that we were able to to screen it in London. Um, we're going to be doing it again uh, next month in April for oh, wow. for Remake Exploitation uh, Festival that will feature that and four other Turkish remakes, uh, in addition to a very excellent documentary by Jem Kaya called Remake Remix Ripoff that sort of documents the the history of the phenomenon. Oh yeah, is that is that from is that from twenty fourteen? Uh, that sounds about right. In preparation for this episode, I think that came up in uh, my research. I didn't have an opportunity to actually get a hold of it, but um... it is it is very difficult to because of rights issues. So generally, the best way to see it is at film fests and so forth, uh, which sucks. But he really, um, Jem Kaya, the uh, the filmmaker, he really wanted to get it out there, and um, it just it just didn't happen. Yeah, no, I mean that makes sense. Something that I wanted to say about the man who saves the world. I actually really think a lot of the the location work is really good. Like the locations where they shot a lot of stuff, you know, really adds a lot of uh, production value. It does. It is gorgeous. So that was all shot in Cappadocia. And it's just one of the most beautiful places in the world. I want to go there. I've not been myself, but uh, I'm not one to make pilgrimages to where they film movies and things. Uh, you know, I don't need to see the house that uh, Ferris Bueller uh, lived in, you know, <laughs> but on its own, Cappadocia is is just so cool. It's famous for those. I think they're called the the fairy chimneys. Those long, sort of mushroom shaped rock formations, uh, which you see when they land. Inanch and company filmed a lot at the uh, Grimma Open Air Museum, which is this complex of cave churches from the, uh, I want to say, 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, built into the volcanic rock, painted with religious iconography. It is just the most amazing. Uh, any, when, they, when they go and get the, that crazy lightning sword, um, that's all filmed there. Several other sequences are filmed there. They did an, a bunch of shooting at these very real underground cities, I think probably Darren Kuyu is the one that they shot at. I'm not 100% sure, but these were actually multi-level underground cities built in the 8th and 7th centuries BCE. And wow. people lived in these like 
eight-story underground cities, when they go and they escape their they first meet the wise old man played by one of my favorite Turkish actors, Hussein Peda, and then the monsters attack and they have to run away from them and they hide in this room and they roll this stone door to block the passageway so the monsters can't get them. That's real. That was an entrance to uh, one of these actual underground cities. Um, and in fact, some of the stuff that kind of sounds like nonsense when Ali Junaid Arkin's character and um, the daughter of the wise old man go and get the the sword and the the magical brain. Um, and there's this narrator who talks about these pilgrims from you know from a piece of earth, and they build these cities uh, multiple stories underground and uh, to escape persecution and stuff. Like it's based it's this is based on actual history that has just sort of been transplanted to this science fiction scenario. There really were Christians who escaped into these underground cities to avoid persecution. I mean, it's super cool, and this like crazy volcanic rock complex is just one of the neatest things in the world to see. You know, you can actually visit them. There are other cave structures from that area that you can go see. They built hotels in them that you can stay at, and I want to go so badly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that whole area is absolutely gorgeous. And then there's a sequence that sort of comes out of nowhere at this mausoleum, the the mausoleum of uh, Haji Bektash Veli, who is, I want to say, either a saint or saint adjacent. And, you know, the wise old man is there and sort of talks about how Islam is really cool. And there were these followers of Islam who uh, came to this bronze mountain that they melted down into a sword. And they're talking about all of this stuff at this um, at this mausoleum. And you're like, why, why, is, why is this here? And it's really because they were just near this actual mausoleum. And, and Ancho was like, well, when are we going to be here again? Let's shoot something here. And so they did. Yeah. And it's a, it's a gorgeous structure as well. Were the unused uh, spaceship sets were that, that would have been a completely different location, different like, location. Yes. Visually. Yeah. And that actually reminds me of something. I believe you said in your deja vu on Turkish star Trek, mm -hmm. um, you made the point that a lot of Turkish productions had, you know, similar problems to a lot of American productions, which is, uh, a low budget and here in the u.s like we just had the back lot it's not on the back lot we would shoot things in a soundstage but in turkey they had you know glorious locations and ruins and relics that they could just take a drive and all of a sudden you have this incredible production value from these like real world um like you were saying i believe one of the locations in the turkish star trek production was shot at one of the seven yeah, wonders of Ephesus, the one of the yeah, side of one of the seven wonders of the of the ancient world. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, Turkish Star Trek, it's, you know, roughly a, a remake of the Man Trap, the first episode that aired. And on the one hand, you know, their version of the Enterprise looks a little bit chintzier than the one that you see on the classic TV show. But if you look at the the, the episode and you look at the Turkish film and you try to tell me that the planet that they land on looks better in Star Trek than it does in uh, Turkish Star Trek, then you can go to hell because uh, <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that is amazing. It's beautiful. It's, it's, I mean, yeah, the production value, I mean, the soundstage planet set doesn't hold a candle to what they were able to get on screen for Turkish Star it's Trek. It's always the same, like, like 
20 feet with the six rocks at the back and the the color, yes, colored psychorama, right. right? Like, come on. They just swap out the gels and mm -hmm. then it's a whole different atmosphere, whole new planet. <laughs> and it's like, you kind of have to do that because you want that control over the set so that you can shoot quickly and you need to be able to get right. good sound and so forth. And in Turkey, they didn't, like there was no infrastructure. They didn't have sound stages and uh, they didn't have to worry about sound because they weren't shooting sound. They, they were doing the same thing that uh, they were doing in Hong Kong or Italy. They were shooting right. without sound and then dubbing the whole thing in post. I was wondering if you know anything about uh, Janae Arkin's jacket that he wears in this, because it's a good one. I know. I want it so bad. Well, okay. Oh, specifically, specifically, I want the the black one, the sort of uniform one that. He, oh yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. With the with the logo on it, I want that one so bad. But uh, <laughs> I know some people have recreated the uh, the blue one that he wears. Uh, for like, oh, nice. For like um, uh, either conventions or or midnight screenings or things like that. I was hoping it's his personal jacket. Yeah, I, <laughs> sadly, I I do not think so. Um, they they also they recreated it for um the sequel to the Man Who Saves the World. Uh, they re recreated both of those costumes, I think. Um, but that movie's not very good. Uh, Anansh's uh idea for the un like the unmade sequel that sounded incredible. Oh yeah, I wish that one was made. <laughs> yeah, so it was um yeah it involved like the the aliens coming and kidnapping the American and Turkish presidents. Um, the heroes have to like go through a black hole and fight zombie ninja space warriors. And, you know, the, the whole thing was another sort of even grander religious allegory about, you know, a battle between good and, and evil and the devil. Well, you said he's, he's, he's still around. Yeah. 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 Do you think if we were able to crowdfund it, he'd be up for getting back in the old director's chair? I don't know. I know that there was some, uh, that some folks kind of wanted to do something not exactly along those lines. Um, there was a project called uh, like Dunya Kutarana Dam 1.5. And I, I kind of don't know the specifics of that, but that was a very short-lived kind of crowdfunding endeavor that was run by somebody else. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't him, but he was on board for it. Um, yeah. I don't know if, if he would be interested in jumping in the, in the director's seat uh, or if he is enjoying his quiet life of retirement at the moment. Uh, it's a really good question. I mean, obviously everything's kind of up in the air with, you know, the whole plague and everything, but, uh, yes. Right. No, no, that's certainly true. I, I did. I did kind of want, I, I really wished a number of years ago when the expendables came out, I was like, oh man, there really needs to be a Turkish expendables. Like, cause, cause there, <laughs> there, there were a handful of really, really famous, um, or not as famous, but perhaps also like iconic Turkish action stars that would be really fun to like, you know, uh, wow. put in a movie and shoot it on digital video, who cares? And just like, you know, do it like the old yeah. ones, because that's really yeah. the problem. Uh, in Turkey right now is that uh, a lot of the old school filmmakers stopped doing it because getting budgets was really difficult. And only a few, I think, really made the jump to the sort of TV era, the the shoot on video kind of kind of era. And I'm not sure enough of them were able to embrace. And I, I don't mean this in terms of like they were reticent, but I, I think that there were there were barriers that meant that they just kind of couldn't embrace that, uh, that new DIY um, uh, yeah. sort of video boom and yeah you, you still need you still need some kind of infrastructure you still you know you're, you're still if if it's very 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 difficult to get the budgets then you know yes you don't have to worry about paying for film and film development and so forth but uh, sure. you know you're still otherwise using similar resources um actors crew yeah it's, uh, still, it's still hard to mount a production yeah, locations are probably more expensive than they ever were so you know there's stuff like that yeah do you have any idea or are you aware what Anak thinks of 
the sort of resurgence in the interest around this film? He's very positive on it. I, I got the opportunity to sit down with him um, for quite a while when I visited Istanbul a few years ago. Um, he is the sweetest guy in the world. And um, he's, you know, he's really positive on that, this new appreciation for the film. You know, I think uh, he he gets his hackles up a little bit when, if, if, you, if you really harp on the fact that, you know, oh, they were stealing this footage or whatever. And it's like, yeah, like, yeah. like, yeah, but no, like one, there were no copyright laws that were really saying, no, you absolutely cannot do this. He and all of his colleagues were working under really just terrible, miserable, insufficient conditions. And these films were transformations of Hollywood film ideas, but they were not, you know, it's, it's not, it's not just crude theft. And I think, I think that right. can kind of get to him, but otherwise, no, he's, he gets a kick out of it. I think, didn't you say that he jokes that another, was it, did he do a Superman movie? Yeah, no, it was, um, and it, he it was, uh, uh, Clint Tolgar who was the, well, I would say maybe sort of supervising editor for Turkish Star Wars, but also, um, he ran the editing and dubbing studio where they, um, uh, processed the film and he was sort of the the visual effects guy for it. And he was a filmmaker in his own right. Um, Kuntolgar, he passed away just uh, a week or so ago. Um, which uh, is really? Extremely tragic. Yeah. Um, I talked to him too. He was just a hoot to hang out with and talk about and, and talk with. Just so wonderful and funny. And he did joke about, you know, that Turkish Star Wars has the reputation for being the worst film ever made. And he's like, like, no, it's not. It should be my film, the Turkish Superman. It's it's the worst. Film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry to hear that he just passed away. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Um, I believe you quote him in the book. Um, he has that lovely quote. If you can if you can do it, do it. If you can't do it, steal it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, which I just love. I think that's great. <laughs> Where would you direct somebody who was interested in watching Turkish Star Wars? So unfortunately, the Blu-ray was very short-lived. And if you go to YouTube, you're probably only going to get a very poor quality unsubtitled version uh, from the current rights holders because they kind of have an iron grip on this stuff. And to be real clear, the company that owns the rights, Fanatic Film, they were not responsible for the film. This is run by a fellow who in the... I want to say mid to late 2000s was just basically gobbling up film rights wherever he could get them, sometimes oh, yeah. getting them for a song and then sort of ruling over them like a like Smaug from The Hobbit. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I've, I've seen other people try to put up different versions of the film and they all get taken down. Um, but I have heard that there are websites like archive.org and Rare Lust where one might be able to procure such films he's heard he doesn't know yeah I, I don't know but but i but i've i've heard tell and now you heard <laughs> <laughs> where can people find you and your work if they're interested in reading more about uh what you do sure um so the easiest place to go is my website neonharbor.com and uh that'll show you all of my projects uh, including my films and web series that have nothing to do with remakes but you can find Deja Vu there. And uh, if you're interested in my book, How the World Remade Hollywood, I would say the easiest thing is probably just to go to your favorite online bookseller, because at least in the States, most of them have it. Um, Amazon and 
uh, Target and Walmart and Barnes and Noble and everybody. Or you can go directly to McFarland's website, the publisher, and that's McFarlandBooks.com, and you can get it directly from them there. I understand that they're pretty quick about shipping those out. Fantastic. And I will be sure to link to all that stuff in our show notes yeah. for this episode. I really genuinely want to thank you for being so generous with your time and sitting down with us to talk about this film. And let, let me tell you, like let, I say, let me tell you a secret. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> one of the reasons that I do this ridiculous stuff like uh, uh, reconstruct the 35 millimeter print of Turkish Star Wars and write weird books about crazy remakes is uh, to have the opportunity to talk about films like this uh, with other people that like them. So this is this is why I do it. Uh, just to just to chat about these movies. It's a, it's a great way to to meet people, make friends, and and talk about movies. So it so it is my pleasure. Yeah. Well, that is fantastic. It makes me so happy to hear. I just, I just I want to personally it. recommend uh, Ed's book because I'm like, it's like my current happy place right now. It's like a treasure oh trove for anybody that like likes to learn new things about movies. Really can't recommend enough. I had actually, I had pre-ordered it and I guess oh my, um, my hard copy ha hasn't arrived <laughs> yet. And so I was, I was talking with Fry yesterday and, and he was like, he was like, I have it. It's out, the digital version. So I went online and I bought the digital version and i was mad because i wanted to read as much of it as i could in preparation for this recording but at the same time i was enjoying it so much that i i kind of wanted to to take my time with it a little bit more <laughs> so that is to say hearty hearty recommendation uh two thumbs up from from this guy and as well we were saying off air your deja vu series on your neon harbor youtube channel is really fantastic it's really great it's a lot of fun. It's very educational. It's very fascinating, very well made and well put together. It's just, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I think it's you have other great, great series on there too. I was, I kind of, I liked uh, Ninja the Mission Force. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Very sort of uh, a spoof of the, the 80s Godfrey Ho Ninja movies and other silliness where we stick ninjas into other oh, movies. You know what? I want to ask you, you, you directed an animated feature. I did. Um, yeah. It's uh, called Space Ninja, and it was based on a comic that a friend of mine started drawing, a webcomic, and sort of before he could get anywhere with it, I was like, this needs to be animated. And actually, in, in, <laughs> in truth, it was, um, we did it as an animated series, a web series of short segments, and uh, it only it sort of only got a season. And when we wanted to do a DVD of it, we're like, since these are so short, um, it just doesn't make sense to put them as like individual episodes because you're just going to like watch them and then see, you know, a few seconds of credits and then have to watch the next one. It's like, why don't we just edit them together in a feature? And since we're doing that, why don't we add some interstitial material and uh, sort of enhance the finale and add some new stuff to the end to do some stuff that we might have done in future seasons, but to kind of wrap up the story. Uh, and so do it as a feature. And uh, And so we did. And that was... Uh, that was a lot of fun, but you know, if the pacing, if 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 you happen to watch it and you're like, this pacing is weird, it's like, yeah, because it wasn't really designed to be a feature film. But oh, that's very cool. And is that available on your YouTube so channel as well? Or uh, it is. It is. Oh, it's on Tubi. It's on Tubi. And if you go to Neon Harbor, like, there's a there's a link to it. Okay, yeah, got your it. website's yeah. very easy to navigate. I will say. <laughs> I I just recently redesigned it to kind of be exactly that, and I'm really glad that that, that it worked because <laughs> I think yours is maybe the first feedback that I got on it. So thank you. <laughs> nice. So knowing your enthusiasm for these kinds of discussions, we are planning to do a whole series of these. We definitely want to cover Star Crash, 
and a message from space. I got to tell you, you should reach out to uh, Stephen Romano about Star Crash yes. because he's the guy. And like everything I learned from about Star Crash, I learned from from his stuff. So uh, he's he's the real source. He well, literally wrote a book on Star Crash that he was yeah. unable to get published. So uh, yeah. So yeah. Maybe we can have both of you on, but I think we're also going to do at some point a message from space, nice. which is another movie that I'm very fond of. So hope to have you back. Consider it a, a standing open invitation. Thanks. And, and I do recommend if you're just, you know, investigating other sort of Star Wars-esque remake exploitation films, uh, the Italian film, The Humanoid. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that one. It's on my list, though, of of ones to see. It's so cool. That it's we like they took cover. all of the production design from from Star Wars and threw it in a blender. It's it's really uncanny. Highly recommended. Well, well, that's a must watch then. Once again, Ed, thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. If you enjoyed any of what you heard, please visit trashcompod.com and trashcompod on all social media. And we will see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.